0: We are here at the new 11FS offices in London for episode 119 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news where blockchain means crypto and crypto meets institutions. As you can tell by now, it is not Simon in the hot seat, it's me, Pet, again, and today we bring you Marcus Makes Stablecoin claim. Poloniex, spun out by Circle, and has Bitcoin failed? All this and much more on today's Blockchain Insider. As I mentioned before, I'm your host, Pep Barisha, and today I'm joined by Aman Kohli, regular at this point and CTO of Banking and Cap Markets at UKNI at
1: DXE. That's a mouthful. It certainly is, and only some of it is an acronym. (laughs) So thanks for having me back. Lovely new offices, and if you can, uh, take a look at the pictures of the studio. It is so sound dead in here no one could hear us scream so uh yeah looking forward to a show it feels
0: like Thanks. there's cotton wool in your ears isn't there? because it's that soundproof in here do you feel that i was going to say something
1: else but yes i yeah, do, okay. yes, I
0: do. <laughs> we're not alone as you can hear by that laugh we're also joined by debutants oliver von landsberg sadie ceo of bcb group and i've been practicing your name all day
2: very good. Uh, Well-pronounced. Thanks, Pat. It's great to be here. I echo those thoughts. It is eerily quiet in here, but I actually quite like that sound
0: control. Yeah, it's, it's very nice. Why don't you tell listeners a bit about yourself and what you guys do?
2: Sure. We uh, set up shop a couple of years ago to address what was an obvious gap in the market for a credible institutional counterparty for spot trading of cryptocurrencies, and we took very much a a kind of regulatory first approach by getting a payments license from the FCA. We've since pivoted in a sense that we still offer that over-the-counter trading facility, but we also process payments now, multi-currency, and
0: we rely heavily on, on the Corda infrastructure to do so. Cool. Yeah, shout out to our friends over at R3. Before we get into the news, you may have heard by now that we made a documentary. It's called 11 Years. It's the rise of UK fintech and it is now available to watch for free at 11years.film. And in just 60 minutes, you'll learn such things as how the financial crisis caused a reform in the UK regulation that encourages competition, why London is the perfect environment for fintech innovation, why UK fintech is so attractive to VC firms and angel investors, and what future challenges and opportunities exist for UK fintech and so much more as I mentioned check it out now 11years.film and share
1: it with all your friends all of
0: them are on. every single one of your friends
1: it's been retweeted so even the, the Russian robots have <laughs> probably watched the movie at this stage have you checked it out? it's on my to-do list
2: I'll see if the wife is up to it Put a bad mark against his name.
0: Uh, let's get on with the news. Uh, so story one comes from Reuters. Facebook open to currency-pegged stablecoin for Libra project. So David Marcus told a banking seminar that their main goal was to create a more efficient payment system and hasn't ruled out alternative approaches for the currency token it would eventually use. He said, and I'm quoting here, we could do it differently. Instead of having a synthetic unit, we could have a series of stablecoins, a dollar one, a euro one, for example. What we care about is the mission and there are a number of ways to go about it. We need to demonstrate a lot of agility. Aman, this is an interesting story that's developing with Libra and it's kind of ever-changing. What are your thoughts so far and what are your thoughts on David's statements here? Well,
1: what I find striking is the question David Marcus has answered isn't the question that's been raised. <laughs> so he's answering questions that he feels needs to be done on the platform, which may or may not be valid. He knows it best. But really what the criticisms around Libra are is really around transparency on one hand, but also privacy on the other. Because Facebook is not the first shop you'd go to when you think about privacy, nor transparency. And what you need in any financial system that is going to be taking the level of flow that they want to take, the level of transactions they want to take, is transparent, ideally open access, and then from the other side, stable not just in a stable coin sense, but liquid. You have to know what the rules are to participate and all of these things. What we have right now is someone saying, well, you know, regulators have complained and we're just going to say we don't want to do it all as euros. That's not what regulators have said. They've said, tell us how it works, how you're going to maintain stability, and why it's good to put money through your pipes, which is perfectly valid, given that they have come out and said, we want to change the world. Also
0: probably completely valid considering they have 2.3 billion users, right? And also that privacy and transparency side of things is probably why they're getting Mark Zuckerberg to uh, get in front of Congress at some point at the end of the month, which is yeah, interesting. Oliver?
2: I think what Libra is is an expression of the need for a more globally recognized, uh, you know, unified form of cryptocurrency, but... Uh. It, I think Facebook Libra itself is going to struggle to achieve that end, and, and its strategy of now, you know, considering uh, you know multiple stable coins is an interesting one. I personally think that most currencies out there will have some kind of tokenized expression in the not too distant future. But I think the core concept of Libra lives on the original intent of it um, through something which caught my eye today, which is Open Libra. A group have gone and taken you know the, the code base basically. and and intend to push the agenda, but in a slightly different way, in a way that's not as centralized or as sponsor-driven as Facebook, and that is more open source, more kind of decentralized.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to see how agile Facebook or Libra can actually be. I think that's one of the things that David Marcus mentioned here. I'm assuming they currently have a relatively small team, but within Facebook and like how they need to do things. Do you think that could be an issue?
1: I don't think agility has ever been brought up as an issue, (laughs) right? I, I think the issue is, and leaving aside the mainstream press, right? Because they'll cry over whatever comes in front of them. I think the issues really here are how do we connect to it? And not just in a technical way, right? So I am a business. I want my users to use your platform to pay for my goods or services. How do I do that? How do I make sure I'm not going to get in trouble with whatever regulation is out there, regulated or out there? That's all. Because what's the alternative? Well, I'll go to Square, I'll go to iZettle, or I'll go to any one of these schemes. It's pretty transparent. It's pretty readily available. And let's look at it from the point of view of who they're asking to be, their users, adopters. The second thing is who's funding it. You know, you've had significant doubt cast from the cards players from basically all the brand names that have come up behind it and that that needs to be addressed right
0: yeah i suppose one of the reasons that some of those big brand names have left and i think we talked about this before we got on air is the the letter that was sent by some u.s senators to some of the ceos and it was not the not the nicest not the most progressive letter but it was in you know more ways than one saying we'll come after your business if you kind of pursue this.
1: You can look at it right like that. The tone was quite aggressive. It was very old school. But really came down to transparency and privacy. They didn't say anything that was we don't want to stop innovation. What they did say is, okay, money's gonna go through your pipes. How do we know it doesn't become tainted in some way or or it doesn't get diverted to something else? And and this is during an atmosphere of where Facebook is being seen to stimulate the results of political elections in certain ways. So it's coming from a real spot.
0: If if it's not a synthesized basket of assets, does it make it more or less private? Like, does that make a difference? Because he hasn't really addressed the main issue that you've just alluded to there, Amon. the, The issue isn't about
1: the makeup of the currency. It's how its liquidity and reserve levels are kept, what's the source of those, and then how do you maintain it as you go forward? You can think of it this way. Let's just say you only have three contributors, and for the sake of simplicity, let's say each contributor contributes to one currency. When that gets out as a transaction, how do you ensure that your reserves and the transactions that happen aren't depleted and boring stuff like that, but it matters because it keeps a currency viable. So look at it this way, right? When I do a person-to-person transfer here using faster payments, the money doesn't actually change bank accounts actually for about four or five hours, and if you do it on a weekend, till Monday. And that's being done through liquidity reserves and liquidity levels. And now you need to multiply this across two billion people, potentially, or, if, or five people, Right now, they don't have many transactions. Let's get up to five people and five businesses and work through the semantics of what that means. You know, I'm surprised because Marcus has done a lot of good innovation. He understands the space. And I think if this was addressed more head on, it would be resolved quicker.
2: I think the real threat lies much further down the timeline. If we look at the potential global adoption curve, should this, you know, system of stable coins Funded by this you know Facebook conglomerate um, be successful of course on day one you're going to have these gateways where you know there will still be money flowing through central banks and into the system and for a period there will be uh, a balance of inflows and outflows that perhaps uh, is weighted towards more inflows and eventually you get a tipping point where those assets parked in real world accounts so-called real-world accounts in central banks begin to lose relevance on the far end of that adoption curve when suddenly all business is conducted via stable coins and central banks are no longer needed. I think that's the core threat that central banks are objecting to is that they lose entire control of the fiscal and monetary system.
1: Yeah. did, Did you see this report? It was actually quite interesting. I know we're going to be covering some of BIS later, but the central bank governor of Sweden did a really good geeky report on how money is used in Sweden. And there are a couple of interesting slides, but the one that got me was, I think it's fewer than 10% of transactions are now done in cash in Sweden. And they are saying, well, what can we do now? We do, this talk of an e cron has come up again. We do need to think about a digital currency, perhaps something that resembles something like this. And what does that mean and how will that look and how do we control it? Because there's a lot to be said for central banks controlling their money and their circulation as a counterargument to complete liberalization of this. Because, you know, we, you just mentioned the 11FS movie. If the UK didn't have control over its currency and we didn't have that control, we would be in a very different position. You know, look at an extreme example. Greece didn't have control over its currency and it prolonged its recovery. And it's not just all on. Greece or all on everyone else is not a direct analogy, but if you just look at it from the point of view of control of currency and what you can do, well, the, the Bitcoin
2: genesis block, which famously incorporates that Times headline, uh, you know about the bank bailouts, um, kind of speaks to the genesis of this entire idea. But there is an interesting point about where you draw the line between, you know, a digital currency and electronic payments as we know it today. You know, we can walk into a Costa and, and pay contactless. Man in the street, as far as he's concerned, digital payments already exists. It's everywhere. As you've pointed out in the beginning of the show, in China, you know, the vast majority of transactions are conducted without any uh, any kind of tangible cash. So the question is, do we need a blockchain? And is blockchain being applied here just for the sake of blockchain?
0: Yeah, potentially. And I think you mentioned that Chinese customer stat. It was a story that we've moved on to. It- From Business side, a Republican senator just gave Libra its first voice of support in Congress after a rocky start with regulators and partners. South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds came out as Libra's first major supporter in Congress on Thursday last week. And he wrote that he sees a future in cryptocurrencies and digital payments, so he doesn't understand his colleagues' hostility. And according to him, more than eighty percent of Chinese consumers used digital payments in the last year, compared to fewer than ten percent of U.S. customers, which I think you alluded to yeah. just then, Oliver. And he wrote that it, uh, that it was profoundly disappointing that other lawmakers responded so negatively to the cryptocurrency, which he fears could put a chill on innovation.
1: There we go, a chill on innovation. Take oh. a chill pill, innovators.
0: <laughs> but that's a that's a massive a massive difference, eighty percent compared to ten percent, right?
1: Well, I mean, it's 80% from where doing what. So if Mm. ultimately a lot of digital transactions in China are effectively stored value cards, right, or stored value systems, which is not vastly different from a debit card. There is equivalence here, and there's non-equivalence. The interesting thing for me around what's happened in China is a lot of its innovation has happened entirely in the private sector, outside of the hands of regulators. There's a lot of discussion happening right now, but... Regulators do need to loosen their grip, and there's some things that need to be done to enable that to happen. Where we've had favorable regulatory regimes, we've seen great innovation. So countries like India, when they launched their digital platforms with the Paytm and all that sort of valuation around UPI, that's really opened up not only innovation in terms of payments, but it's opened up access to the unbanked and underbanked
2: opening access to the unbanked and underbanked, really leveraging the network effects of something that most of us have in our pockets, which is a a messenger. I think that's what China has really capitalized on. They've said, let's bring payments into this massive network that everybody's on. And WeChat, people can transfer value freely all day.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and I think I'll ask one last question. Do you think Libra will launch by July 2020 as their goal is? And if they do, what form do you think that will take?
1: So the corporate Silicon Me, which... He's there. We'll say something will launch in July 2020, and it'll be declared a success. I think if we want something that's going to be a platform that's readily adopted and that has value to Facebook Inc.'s small, medium business customers, it needs to be something that's a little bit more embraced by at least a couple of regulators, and maybe not a couple of senators and congressmen, <laughs> which uh, which may have received some favor.
2: I mean, the problem is not a technical one. I think you can do this with a team of 20 really smart people, maybe even less. It's definitely one of uh, getting buy-in from from the people whose existence it threatens.
0: Interesting. Well, we're definitely going to be keeping our eyes and ears on this on blockchain insider between now and then uh, we've got a second story from coindesk bitcoin has failed but global stable coins are a threat say bis and g7 so bitcoin and other early cryptocurrencies have failed as an attractive means of payment or store of value, says a new report from the G7 and Bank of International Settlements. They do reference widely adopted asset-pegged cryptocurrencies or stablecoins are growing threat to monetary policy, financial stability and competition. However, they say that the first-generation crypto. Currencies have suffered from highly volatile prices, limits to scalability, complicated user interfaces, and issues in governance and regulation. And they finally say, while stablecoins may offer faster, cheaper, and more inclusive payments, they can only be realized if significant risks are
1: addressed. Has Bitcoin failed? No, no. I, I don't think Bitcoin has failed or anything's failed in that regard. I think what a lot of this is, is more comment on, if you want to make some, something mainstream and adopted, it, it needs to fit into the way we perceive the world to be. And so, if we parse out kind of what what the bank has said here, the Bank of International Settlements said, they said, "Okay, if we just look at it as a way of transmitting value, on the whole, it's failed." I don't know about that. I think there's a lot of anecdotal incidents where it's actually shown to be absolutely needed. I think. On the main though, a lot of the transactions have been investor speculative, and we've got to get those people out of the barn, right, just to let these things figure out what they're doing and finding a spot. The other issues they've listed, you know what? you have a new technology, you have a new way of doing things, it takes time to settle. And that's what I'm so sorry, uh, but it it, ta- it takes time to figure out the best way to work. <laughs> sorry, it's a really bad pun. Uh, love but, it. And really just just those pieces, you know, complicated user interfaces. Okay, yes, but once you hide behind something or you make it easier, I'll say this right now. The user interface of any Bitcoin or Ethereum is a thousand times better than any cards rail. A thousand times better. If anybody's programmed against these things, they will tell you the same thing. And you know when the wind changes direction, at least the connectivity remains, and you can connect to it. So
2: I have to echo all of that. I mean, I call bull if you don't mind on both of those <laughs> points. Uh, not yours, I'm on <laughs> the uh, the points on in which uh, you know has Bitcoin failed as a means of payment or as a um, as a store of value. I mean, so I think we have a bit of a front row seat to this question as uh, as a, a crypto centric prime broker, one of our key clients that we proudly promote on our website is bitpay one of the world's leading payments processes for for cryptocurrencies we process a certain sector of of payments come, that come through so punters will pay merchants in cryptocurrency bitpay will process it uh, and send uh, fiat currency back to those merchants we see those numbers growing month on month so in terms of bitcoin itself as a means of payment we're we're seeing steady growth on the in terms of store of value um you know, CoinDesk themselves published something. Oh, sorry, this was Coin Telegraph actually, which pointed out the fact that there are more Bitcoin millionaires now than ever before, by citing one stat that there are more wallets which contain one thousand BTC or more mm. uh, than ever before. And you know, so somewhere somebody's accumulating value. Um, what, uh, they uh, value. what they perceive as value. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't think the jury's out on this. I think it is clear there is growth both in means of payment, and store of value.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's another point as well, though. It's it's the way right now, I think, in accounting terms, when you conduct a cryptocurrency transaction, how that then gets recognized. The accounting rules haven't quite turned that into the same sort of way of capturing a foreign currency transaction, for example. There is some bits around the regulation that needs to be brought into line, I think, to enable it. And the other points around governance and regulation, you know, we've we've seen a huge ebb and flow in terms of what regulators viewed on it. You know, we remember all the raids and all of those on different exchanges that came through. That That's all pretty much stopped. We're now talking about the stability of these different exchanges and how that they're contributing to different sort of, in your case, payment flows and all of that. So it is maturing. But like anything in payments, it doesn't happen in a year. It happens over a long time. We all get gray hairs, and then we go, yeah.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. It grows with the growth of the network, Metcalfe's Law, which we don't need to repeat. But the fact that credible merchants are using Bitcoin as, as a means of payment you know, increasingly, uh, you know,
1: I think uh, the, the death of Bitcoin has been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, But definitely read the report. No matter where you stand on the outcomes of it, BIS tends to raise points that are worth digesting. They're informed. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. But it's time for another quick show. This episode is brought to you by R3. Developed by R3, Corda is light years ahead of other blockchain platforms in terms of privacy, security, scalability and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type or any size and in any industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is now available at r3.com. Head over and check it out. Right, on with the show. CoinDesk. Again, a circle to spin out Poloniex less than two years after $400 million takeover. So Poloniex, the uh, exchange, will now become Polo Digital Assets, an independent international company backed by an unnamed Asian investment firm. They will now not be catering to U.S. customers after this year. And U.S. residents have until the 15th of December 2019 to withdraw their assets. Poloniex said the company has a multi-year plan to spend more than $100 million to develop and expand its platform, and they're going to reduce trading fees to 0% between October 21st and December 31st, probably to get some liquidity in there. So uh, what are your thoughts here,
1: It all seems above board, and there's nothing to worry about, I think. It's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, Decoding the unnamed agent firm, no US investors, let's have 0% fees. I seem to remember a lot of uh, gambling platforms doing this when they moved offshore and, <laughs> and, and they went on, So, um, or variants of it. I think it's kind of being less uh, kind of humorous about it. The, it's good that Circle is kind of spinning out different parts of his business. That's usually a good sign that the main business is focusing and pivoting around things that has, has value. Polonix, aesthetically, is a better name now. Okay. Pull of digital assets, but well, I don't get a sense of purpose of what they're actually going to be doing. I mean, that this is, this that is step one though, like
0: it. isn't it? This is like the I think we spoke about it off there. The reset button, the rebrand to try and get away from the horrible and bad things that have kind of tarnished their name, such as the missing eighteen hundred Bitcoin that was, according to you, Oliver, worth eighteen million dollars at the time that it was lost. So things like that, users don't forget. But maybe a rebrand, a rename from a marketing standpoint in the long term might make people forget to some extent.
2: I think so. We trade with Circle. And for the longest time, they've been referring to Poloniex as Polo. And I thought that's a cute nickname for it. And we started referring to it as Polo as well. So it's clearly part of a concerted you know, rebrand. This is long before uh, this divestment this boils down to trust i think people have you know long memories when they lose money the flash crash in may which caused that 1800 btc loss and we still don't know if it is a real if the BTC are missing or if value is actually destroyed in that event, that trust is going to take a long time to, to rebuild. And I think these are these are positive steps uh, in that direction. The yeah. 0% fee is going to be a no-brainer for many people who are just interested in, in liquidity because um, you know those make-or-taker fees do add quite a bit of friction to trading.
0: Yeah, I wonder how many of those users will be retained, though, which is interesting. I guess... They obviously delisted a load of coins before they went through this kind of rebrand. Also, Bittrex have done something recently. I think today or yesterday I got an email from them saying that they were quote-unquote closing down but then spinning out as something else. And it's interesting to see all this happening in the exchange world while Binance recently passed $1 billion uh, cumulative revenue for this quarter alone. And the $100 million circle of kind of Earmark there. Is that going to be enough to kind of make a, a splash in the ocean? They can certainly throw that at a tech
2: team and and make it work. Again, it's, it goes back to the trust thing. But I view the, the delisting of some of the smaller coins as unfortunate, but also positive in a way, a bit like a, a forest fire. Personal anecdote, a friend of mine said he's got some Ardor trapped on Poloniex, about $15 worth. Um, could I, you know, convert it for him? And I said, just you can just flip it into BTC on Poloniacs and just you know, send yourself the BTC. I and mean, actually, they'd, they'd, they'd stop the trading pairs altogether. So you had to get it off the system. Yes, uh, the, the weeding out, I guess, of uh, unfortunately, some legitimate projects get caught up in that delisting. But a lot of the scam projects um, now have their final goodbye, buy. And that's a great relief and a good cleanup for the, for the industry in, a ge-
1: in general. I agree with that. But what happens as you go through a listing and delisting process of different coins, this comes back into regulation and governance. What's driving it? Who has access to it? Why are things being allowed on? Why are things being allowed off? So for something as very simple as uh, stock exchanges, they're very clear rules that you need to comply to. We don't seem to have even roughly unified rule books across exchanges. And again, I don't mean this in the old-fashioned kind of fill in this form, do that form sort of thing. But there are things we should be able to express in terms of giving things like transparency, which we were speaking about earlier, the adequate light of day.
0: Did we begin to see that slightly with Coinbase and a few other exchanges uh, with the the rating system or the the council that they created? Is that kind of the way forward or do you think it's it's another way?
1: So there are a few ways you can do this, right? One company I know, they're very digital. But when you have to do a release form, you have to sign an iPad. And some people say, that's digital. It's not. A digital process would be a digital signature. That's the same thing here, right? When you're listing something and you need to comply to rules, well, we should be able to do that in a digital way, mm, right? What's your digital onboarding? How can I do this? So a rating system's okay, but that to me says it's basically like Rotten Tomatoes. good. Bad? Indifferent, right? <laughs> and uh, how do you move from indifferent to good? How do you move from indifferent to bad? How do you move from bad to good, right? All these things. And that That's not what you want to know. You want to know things like, how active is this platform? Is that activity being driven from a diverse set of uh, people transacting on it? You know, what's the liquidity like? What's this like? What's that like? All these, you know, we can probably come up with 100 or so parameters if we wanted to. And we're... You know, uh, disciplined enough to do so, we can put put that together, and that becomes your sheet. And it's perfectly okay to be a non transparent parent platform on an exchange. There's nothing wrong with that, but you people need to know this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: One of those inputs should definitely be code activity, GitHub um, mm-hmm. pulls mm-hmm. and requests. It's the first thing we look at when somebody asks about an obscure coin: is it open source? Are people active? No, sorry, I
0: support it. <laughs> Definitely valid. We'll move on to our last story here from Cointelegraph. Uh, Samsung SDS partners with Tech Mahindra for a new DLT product. So the IT subsidiary of global tech giant Samsung has announced a joint initiative to launch a new blockchain-based traceability product. Specifically, the joint initiative will be a combination of Samsung's SDS's enterprise blockchain platform NextLedger Universal and Pega's digital process automation platform Pega Platform. Good name. Yeah. Uh, by integrating Pega's core product with NextLedger, the firms aim to develop improvements for supply chain systems.
1: What do you make of this? Well, it's a very corporate announcement. Uh, that's one thing. But I, what makes it interesting is You've got a player like uh, Samsung SDX, which is a particular arm of uh, Samsung that's focused around building sort of these new integrations and, you know, moving away from some of the investment space we've been talking about here. This is very much focused on uh, traceability around product and Tech Mahindra's been doing a lot of good work in India for the last few years, especially on these different integrations that are happening and different innovations that are happening and how to best apply them. And that to me is interesting. Partnering with Pega, which is at best not a very exciting company from an innovation point of view, but they're used by a lot of companies and they've done a lot of work to re-energize what they have. This allows you in a practical way to build traceability from those people who need traceability. So it's like putting on those old shoes and socks. You sometimes have to speak the language to get the outcome that people need. And this is, it could be quite positive, right? Because it's um, it's looking at everything from services to manufacturing, so tangibles to intangibles. And that's got to be a good thing.
2: It's good that it's taken uh, you know a, a holistic approach like that. Often, where Seoul leads, um, you know Taiwan follows. It used to be the other way around, but now HTC have come out with the uh, the Exodus 1S, which is taking one very tiny slice of that. So I think we're going to see more of these, uh, you know blockchain-enabled, crypto-friendly handset hardware. This, uh, this Exodus 1 is quite interesting. It's, you, know, you can store the entire 250 gig of the Bitcoin node on it via a little 400 gig um, SD card on the phone, which, as we discussed earlier, presents its own challenges. You know, if your phone drops in a puddle.
0: <laughs> I did see some funny tweets where it was like, was it the press release that compared it to a Swiss bank in your pocket or something like that? And someone tweeted something like, I can't put a Swiss bank in the wash, which is...
1: Right, the- <laughs> yeah. But, but oddly... You can launder a Swiss bank. <laughs> 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 Nicely done. You're on fire with the puns today. It's, you know, day of pent up oppression.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though. Like, I've, do you see much use in a phone being able to be a Bitcoin node and being able to be, quote unquote, a Swiss bank in your pocket?
2: <laughs> That's a damn good question. I think it gives those hardcore Bitcoin fundamentalists the complete isolated ownership of that coin. I mean, assuming all of the kind of connectivity barriers are addressed, um, if you've got a full node and you've got the private keys right there, you're not relying on a server hosting a node where they've got your private keys. The old Bitcoin expression, you know, own the keys, own own the coins. So, yeah, for those who really want to hold their own Bitcoin 100%, it's probably the
1: only way to do it. It's interesting, right? Because what, what you're actually saying is, while I own the phone, one, will the battery life be better or worse than my current phone? <laughs> but two, over the lifetime of the phone, is the phone going to be able to pay for itself? I mean, how awesome is that?
0: Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I just question whether or not if it's the thing that it, it's, it's USP is that it's you know a full Bitcoin node and you can hold all your Bitcoin in it, does it need to be a phone?
1: Well, what's a phone these days, right? I mean, when, yeah. When's, right, when's, the, when's the last time you've actually used the phone as a phone?
2: I'm going to retract some comments earlier, which is that you know the, the whole ownership because technically you could own as much Bitcoin as you wanted at an address if you just had a piece of paper with the private key written mm. on it. So the the phone really, I mean, what does a Bitcoin core node give you? It doesn't give you the ability to mine, so they're not going to be able to generate value on this. But it does give you the ability to sign and broadcast transactions. It's a really quirky, geeky thing on a wish list. Uh, It'll probably take off because people will want to have the entire blockchain on their phone. <laughs> but it's a very, I think it's a niche market. Maybe a nice to have.
1: Well, you know, there's a reason why mathematicians came up with Merkle Trees and Patricia Trees. So just, uh, I would just trust mathematics sometimes.
0: Okay, stories we didn't have time to cover. So from the block, at Ripple CEO Brad Darlinghouse claims to sign over 30 deals a quarter with financial institutions for blockchain payments. Two, the block. Binance increases leverage up to 125x for its futures trading platform. This is not reading
2: the room, is it? I mean, BitMEX with their 100x is controversial enough. Binance goes, that's okay, we can
1: do 125. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. What's this leveraged against, though? And what's the leverage, right? Is it fiat or is it... Magic coin.
2: I think their model is a copy-paste of BitMEX, which means that the BTC, it'll be BTC Perpetual Futures, where you can stake one Bitcoin and get access to 125 Bitcoins worth of um, price fluctuation, which means it only it needs to move, the price needs to move by one 125th in order to lose the entire position. (sighs) Is that the only thing that you can
1: leverage? I haven't looked into it. it. Yeah,
2: yeah, they're probably open up to
1: the majors at least. So it's a good thing because Bitcoin is a very stable and non-volatile pricing (laughs) platform, so we're fine. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Uh, The last one that's quite interesting, I quite like this one, Brave.com. Brave reaches 8 million active users on a monthly basis and delivers nearly 400 uh, privacy-preserving ad campaigns.
1: That's got to be the future, right? You tell me. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty good i mean eight million monthly that's a a big number well i mean look Mm -hmm. a million anything's a big number right it it all depends on context right eight million people eight million people in london's a big number right but eight million people in you know europe not so big but yeah it's good it's 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 great an indicative way of doing it depends Uh, how we we, we can't
2: ignore it anymore i think we're a chrome shop you know our our technology is heavily chrome based or as web apps but increasingly our clients who are crypto-capable clients are saying, you know, this is not working on Brave, so we've got to get some
0: patches out there quick. <laughs> it depends what they define as active users as well.
1: Well, you know, better than passive-aggressive, I think, is the key thing there. So. <laughs> and, and Brave has a lot of good things going for it. Right?
0: It does. Potentially the future. Quote, yeah. um, Thank you. Go. 2019. Uh, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, tweet! Tweet, tweet! It's the Tweet of the Week! The tweet of the Week! So this week's Tweet of the Week comes from Patrick McKenzie at Patio11. He says, A Bitfinex files discovery in Yobro, where did our $800 million go? Action, and it is every bit as interesting as you'd expect it to be. So it's quite an interesting thread, but the context here is that Bitfinex, the exchange, has been unable to access the $880 million in funds from crypto capital since at least December 2018, as the payment processor claims that its bank accounts in Poland, Portugal, the UK, and the US have been seized or frozen by government agencies. It's... Um, Kind of not going well for Bitfinex. Bitfinex have been through every war imaginable. The number of tether
2: headlines fills, you know, two or three Google pages. Um, they probably survive this. Yeah, we'll see.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't want to start here. I think is big thing about this. It's uh, it'll be interesting to see how the court responds to it, and it'll be more than interesting to see if uh, YoBro gets an answer as well. <laughs>
0: Wouldn't it be funny if they actually addressed it like that? Uh, but looking at the defense
1: the defense, which is that,
2: you know, the eight hundred mil is there and it's just stuck in the banks. I mean, having, you know, been subject to a bank saying, Oh, you're crypto, you know, we can't help you anymore,
1: there's a seed of truth in there. Mm-hmm. And, and given the markets outside of the UK and US, they are quite conservative. So mm. no matter how conservative you think the US is. And it, it, it is conservative and it's not conservative. The UK depends on the day of the week. Uh, it depends on the day of the week you're on, on the level of conservatism. But certainly Poland and Portugal would have a different risk appetite.
0: And I think Portugal come out quite recently. I think last time we were on the show together, when I was going to Portugal, and they had just opened up as this kind of like crypto hub or whatever. So for them to have seized those accounts is is probably... Not a big deal, but interesting considering the kind of
1: standpoint they take. Yeah, well, I mean, look, that's that's a regulator versus tourism policy, <laughs> right? That's when, when, when it comes down to it. And, and you don't know if they've been asked by other regulators to, yeah. to do this, right? Because a lot of what's happening is testing the waters. And again, is the underlying reason that it's not just, you know, we don't trust you crypto guys out, or we don't trust you crypto people out. Is it Could it just be where, how did you get $200 in your account? Can you let us know where it came from? You know, you don't know what the underlying cause has been on it.
2: The gateway at Bitfinex, if you sign up for a new account now, is super tight. It's really, the email is incredibly strong. But back then when this happened, anybody could get on there with as little as an email address. Yeah, well, so you know, how do you explain $800
0: million that have come in by a bunch of randomized email addresses? (laughs) Right, we'll wrap up on that note. But before we leave you, uh, Simon and Colin are joined by Todd McDonald in the flesh live at Cordicon for a very, very special blockchain insider recording. Stick around to listen to it.
3: Next up, we're doing something a little bit different, it's all about energy. Uh, So we have a couple of gentlemen that are all about that. Uh, so I have the pleasure of introducing a couple folks. The, I guess I like to call them the Lennon and McCartney of, uh, of blockchain podcasting. Um, Simon Taylor, founder of 11FS and Colin Platt that says you put your bio as founder of dank crypto memes. Is that actually okay? All right. So, uh, we're going to be doing a live, uh, podcast for all of you here today. And, uh, I've known these guys for a while, as I mentioned, Leonard McCartney, I, I knew them in, in sort of their, uh, you know, their help phase, and now with the beards, they're more in their Abbey Road kind of thing. But uh, it's, it's really going to be really exciting. Um, and third person I'd like to introduce gives me the most pleasure, which is myself. So we're all going to get up on stage, and please, this is a live podcast, we're recording it so you're all on the hook for being super excited and laughing at everything. So guys, let's do it.
4: Stage earlier, but
5: I figured that was already done today. Oh man, <laughs> that was tough. All right, thanks for having us, Todd. Thank you. All righty. Um, so, as Todd said, this is a live discussion, uh, and we are going to be recording this on the podcast. So, if you want to hear yourself, you've got to be loud. Okay, so uh, just as a reminder, um, when we do these, the audience is loud, so you don't want to be the audience that's like not the loud one that stands out. You want to be like bringing the energy. So I'm going to do a bit of an intro, and when I say we are live, I want you to give us, and I mean this, the loudest cheer you've ever given in your life. Like go nuts, go wild, go nuts for how great that cocktail party was last night. Woo! You were there. That's, if you weren't there, then go nuts for it anyway. Alrighty, uh, we're going to get started in just
4: a sec. You guys Ready? Can we say no? (laughs) (laughs) No backing out now.
5: All right, let's do this. We are actually here at CordaCon 2019 in London, bringing you Blockchain Insider, and we are live. (laughs) I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by, well, some pretty excellent guests, but of course... First up, i got to mention, back on the show, back here, uh, away from his field, the GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. How are you doing, sir? Doing excellent. Thank you very much. Did you see the other gentleman that we're going to introduce in a second run across the stage at the beginning of today? What well, it you- wasn't quite the stage. It was it was just right in front of us, underneath the stage. Just practicing. Just practicing.
4: <laughs> the voice you hear
5: there, listeners, is, of course, uh, the one and only friend of the show, Todd McDonald, co-founder of All 3 How are you doing, friend of the show? I'm doing fantastic, Simon. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward. Wait. What? Wait. No. (laughs) Thanks for you having us here to have you. Yes. Exactly. That's what I meant. We'll figure it out. Uh, All righty. Today's show, we're going to be talking about the unregulated. Ooh, scary. Uh, We're going to be talking about the future of institutional crypto or tokens, however you want to phrase it, and of course the good old uh, space of blockchain. Um. This space is still kind of full of regulatory uncertainty. That's one of the big pushbacks you always get. And the future is kind of unclear. Um, We're at a bit of a turning point where regulators have been forced, I think, to cast their eyes on what's been happening on projects of all sizes. Um, So let's kick this off by discussing the unregulated. There was a hearing uh,
4: in Congress. I don't know if you saw anything about that one, Colin. Uh, I was here, but I did see a lot of really good videos. It seemed very um, open, honest, objective, and, and nobody brought up Anything about um, large social media platforms potentially affecting their own elections. Indeed. (laughs) Just remind everybody, for those that didn't catch the hearing, what was the hearing? Oh,
3: it was uh, we had our friend Mark Zuckerberg uh, talking in front of Congress, uh, uh, not only about Libra, but really about Facebook.
5: Yes, indeed, indeed. But we'll come back to Facebook because the SEC, though, has been quite busy. They've been clamping down on all kinds of things. Colin, give me some examples and uh, do you think that this is, you know, is there a risk that the regulators start to throw the baby out with the bathwater if we're, like, coming in on the concept
4: of tokens by going after the, quote-unquote, unregulated space? Well, throwing the baby out with the bathwater insists that some of these ICOs were, like, worthwhile. <laughs> um, so, I mean, frankly, let's just destroy the entire bathroom. Um, <laughs> like... There was a lot of garbage, let's be honest. It's finally coming, um, as our friend Preston. Another friend of the show, Preston Byrne, likes to call it the, the, what is it, the Marmot apocalypse, when the regulators actually pay attention to the billions and billions of dollars that have come in through all of these ICOs and tokens, and they're finally, what, Coming in hard, things like EOS. Yes, they raised four billion dollars and woo twenty five million dollars. That's like what yeah. sixty basis points. So, yeah. for those of you that missed it, there was of course the token
5: EOS. Uh, they raised four billion dollars and they've uh, received a fine of twenty four million. But the, probably the biggest one was Telegram. Um, they raised about a billion, and uh, that's still in active discussion, I believe.
4: Well, that was a SAFT, So they screwed up um, and decided they were going What's to repurpose. Yes, they were going to repurpose something. Um, a really easy paperwork to for small startups to raise money in equities. And so they just did a, like, find and replace and instead of equities as tokens and that made it not a security. Mm-hmm. Except for the SEC said, well, actually... It was such a security. <laughs> <laughs> there
3: was none more security than that thing. It was unbelievable. And $1.7 something
4: like that? $1.7 So they, they were supposed to launch on the 31st of October, but like something else, it's not going to happen on the 31st of October. <laughs> but I... I, 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 I but yeah, for, if you think about, though, you look at
3: Telegram and, and and potentially this is coming from the U.S., right? So So... The regulators globally are going to be focusing on this, whether it's on the ICO side of things or you know going forward into Libra. Uh, but for I think the big difference between maybe between EOS and Telegram was the U.S. So if you read what uh, the what the sort of the the memo said, it was dumping these tokens onto the U.S. public. That was what they were focused on was back into the U.S. shores. Um, it's a big number as well. What's going to be interesting for me is to see what happens to the very very uh, high class. Sand Hill Road investors Mm.
4: that participated in the Telegram offering. But you know what? There's no liquidity in the back end of those things because, like, you can trade SaaS before they go live. Nobody's been dumping them, which is odd. Because the whole point of all this is to pump and then dump. Yeah, but nobody's dumping, right? And there's no pumping. What what happened?
3: <laughs>
5: <And> they are <laughs> for two. That's pretty bad. It, it, well, it seems like um, maybe they're under water, and uh, there's there's a kind of a, a situation there they got to worry about. It, it just everything is frozen. It's bizarre. It, 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 the the world of unregulated tokens has got a bit weird, or less than regulated tokens. It was already
4: weird. I grant less you. But than it, less than regulated. Less than regulated. I, like I that. think I think unregulated <laughs> or less than regulated is wrong. It's not quite caught up with the fact that they should be regulated. Mm-hmm. Well, and was
5: there an element of naivety here? Or was or was there some, some pure profiteering? Did the
4: fact that the technology changed uh, make any difference whatsoever? Well, you, you've heard of the, the famous ZOOG defense. This was the thing that Ethereum set up where they said, right, we can't be a security if we have no shareholders. So we're just going to set up a non-profit foundation that launched all these things that are not securities. And everyone went, yeah, let's do that. Um, and then they said, let's do that in Singapore. Let's do that in the UK. Let's do that everywhere. Um, and lawyers said, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So it's finally catching up with the fact that, yeah, that didn't actually work, except for, for Ethereum, for some reason, it worked. So it's interesting
5: to me that this has flipped now as we look at the more regulated side of the world. There's been a pretty big uh, bit of movement in the past couple of months, um, Well, even in the past year. Um, you mentioned, I think David mentioned in his keynote, um, Six, the Swiss Stock Exchange, Wells Fargo, Mastercard, and others are playing with tokens. Do these tokens and digital assets look like the ones from the world um, of quote-unquote crypto, or are they fundamentally different somehow. So I think Sammy,
3: you said playing with tokens what, what I've noticed over the last year is you know companies such as as Six and Deutsche Börse which are here today they don't play around with things they invest and they launch products for existing customers and also you know there's no there's no half regulation for what they have to do there's no like diet regulation that they can they can adhere to uh, so you know the trick of all this is take, can you take the innovation that was you know the one percent of the innovation within yeah. the, the ICO world and bring it in to the enterprise world? that's one and two. It does go back to the liquidity. so you know you can create as many assets as you want, but if you can't create the liquidity behind it, then what's the point? So if you think of what uh, what Deutsche Borse is doing and working with HQLX, they're plugging a, a, a new type of token into their existing infrastructure with URX and Clearstream. if you think about what six is doing, they're they're looking at this as what's the next phase? What's you know the sort of the jump to the mobile phone from the landline, mm-hmm. and they're building a net new exchange, mm-hmm. um, but they're not doing it through you know a Telegram chat group. Right.
5: <laughs> so, what value does tokenization
4: bring for liquidity? Because liquidity is not just a, a technology beast, Colin. Uh, I, I think it's slightly more nuanced than than necessarily throwing new liquidity into mm-hmm. it. Um, it's. At, at the end of the day, what these technologies allow us to do is move things more seamlessly and quite quickly and actually deliver the physical assets. So um, back in my old days when I used to work at a bank, we talked about digital rematerialization of these assets. So mm-hmm. when you actually custody private keys, you actually hold the asset. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, it's… It's nuanced, but that's quite interesting. So you can start to open up new channels where you could imagine that liquidity might be attracted. Um, but saying something about, you know, these half-regulated things, I am wondering, I, I heard you guys launched a token yesterday. A ah, no. oh,
5: yeah.
4: <laughs> what was this token? There's a, there's a
3: coin now? Uh, we, no, we had a talk yesterday, so Roger, Roger Willis is in the back somewhere, uh, did a talk about, if one were to do uh, to think about launching a blockchain with a proof of work um, consensus mechanism on Corda, you can do it because Corda is a set of Lego blocks where you can build a lot of different things.
4: Mm.
3: Um, so that was the talk. The column is very helpful for uh, tweeting lots of pictures out of context. So thank you very much. Mm. Definitely, And they did get
4: picked up. So we like did. Oh, yeah. engagement. we have but. a
3: lot of interesting followers on Twitter. We do, uh, but it, <laughs> it, 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 it's it, I think it's, it's it's interesting about like what is um, one of the things that you know Roger talked about yesterday, and the mm. reason that you know, the what we're trying to build quarter of the way we have is, you know, there's there's different needs, right? So if 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 I am a existing regulated exchange, I'm going to be launching something differently than if I'm uh, if I'm trying to create you know a new asset. I think when you think about it, there's you know, enterprise tokens and there's a new set of things where where we're going to start tokenizing things that, that, that don't exist as assets
5: today. So, yeah, I think that's interesting that tokenizing things that don't exist as assets today feels like opportunity and, and kind of new revenue versus yep. things that exist and are dematerialized. Like, that's actually kind of a long journey, right? Surely taking those and, and digitizing them is a process and, and more of a journey, whereas you've kind of got a greenfield space there with things that, that
4: might not already be digital. So there's there's an interesting point that you just raised there. So um, I used to work in structured products, and we talked a lot about different legal wrappers for putting an asset into um, with derivatives. And you can kind of think of a lot of the tokenization as, as just a new operational wrapper. Um, it's not necessarily changing the legal structure of a security. Um, it's just changing the way it moves, the way it works. Um, but then there's that big question mark of, you know, what was Bitcoin before the token? Or what was Ether before the token. And you can start to imagine that some of these things of moving assets and value around can actually of themselves create a new value system inside this. So I wouldn't at all be surprised if you have some mechanisms to create new, let's call them DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations within a network like Corda that just does load balancing mm-hmm. and has some kind of value in it. So that's, that's quite cool. I assume it will be highly regulated. Um, so it, it's not coming out of nowhere and not Answering to anybody. Um, But there are a lot of kind of these new second and third order values that come out of new networks and new ways of doing things.
5: And I think when it comes to that value, I mean, a lot of folks in the audience today will have to go and explain that they'll have heard about the L word um, <laughs> our, our good friends at Libra. Um, and obviously, you know, Libra have now got twenty-one members. They've uh, uh, they're now starting to look like maybe they're through the worst of the uh, worst are pushed pushback. No, okay. There's some squinting faces. Do you what, what, did you watch it yesterday?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
5: I was trying to be kind. Yeah. Um, so. There's obviously like, confusion at the C-suite. Um, and when you're uh, post-Libra, when people are seeing those headlines and sort of getting this view of like actually regulators hate this stuff. You know, how, do you, how do you have that more nuanced conversation, Colin? What, what do you,
4: where do you start with this stuff? Well, let me, let me take a giant step back. Libra, and, and David Rudder said this, Libra is fantastic because it made people sit up and talk about it. We had the President of the United States tweet about Bitcoin because of Libra. Mm-hmm. that's I mean he tweets about everything but that's quite big um, <laughs> not a threshold it's yeah I guess it's that's more a bug than a feature but true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean we have we've had congress spend how many hours looking at this in the United States we've had how many things happen in Switzerland in the ECB I live in France France and Germany have had a lot to say about Libra um, all of it, None of extremely it good. <laughs> yeah, not extremely bad not very good. <laughs> um, but it, it's interesting that they're sitting up and taking a look and all these things that bitcoiners we're saying, well, we were telling you this, this was our goal. We wanted to destroy the system. Of course, that's not what Facebook and Libra are trying to do, um, but that's what they're worrying is going to happen because they don't understand that that is, in fact, what they're doing. Um, where does this start to take us? When we can actually have a frank discussion about these things we've been talking about, how things change in these new assets and the new way of moving money, um, and David Rudder, again, brought up, um, how we actually affect monetary policy through some of these things. Mm-hmm. That's quite an interesting discussion, and we're only getting to the cusp of it. I just wish the people that designed Libra understood that's exactly what they were doing. Well, so there's um, <laughs> the classic
5: work that is Bank of England Working Paper 605, which Ooh. is... Uh, <laughs> oh.
4: We, we always yeah. cheer for that on this show. <laughs>
5: 92 pages of economics about what uh, a central bank-issued digital currency could do for GDP. Um, and they predicted a 2 to 3% uplift in GDP being potential. Uh, and, it, and it is a proper work of economics, and that dates back to two thousand. So from a policy standpoint, there are clearly monetary policy. There are some available advantages that, that could be there so, for a central so bank. That's, we talk about central banks and creating
3: money. Mm-hmm. You think about, uh, in, in reflecting on how what Libra did, so there's a bunch of things to talk about with Libra. We talk about their go-to-market and, and their awful game theory that they used in trying to launch this. Um, but I think more interesting for today is uh, what they tried to do was, it wasn't what regulators are looking for. Because they're looking for a public-private partnership. Mm-hmm. So, if you think about uh, monetary policy and, and extending that into an, into an economy, think about payment and payment networks. What are payment networks? They're public-private partnerships. Mm. So, regulators and central banks are want to work with the private sector in order to uh, impart their monetary policy in order to, uh, to 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 reach the aims that they've set them for themselves for for you know financial inclusion and, and low friction payments. But it's the, the partnership part. Was kind of missing. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think, the presumption of the group to to, to go about it the way they did just put them so far behind. And they didn't start from the public
5: private partnership side. I think listening first and
3: reacting later, it was was kind of backwards.
5: Which now you see with Six now working with the central bank, you see with Finality working with a number of organizations. There's that public-private partnership model does seem to be at least emerging. But there's the classic, um, I think it was Sam Altman, the founder of Y Combinator, said, can the uh, incumbent uh, get innovation before the innovator gets distribution? Like, this is the classic innovator's dilemma.
3: But Libra was trying to get the distribution of money. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to win against the central bank. You just don't, you don't fight the Fed. It's a very simple rule.
5: <laughs> it's a good rule. Um, but is there, um, you know, Libra uh, three months ago was a very different beast to what they claim it is now. And it seems to be a bit of a moving target. Do you do you think, uh, I mean, if you follow David Marcus' Twitter account at least, what, what they claimed it was and what it is? You are a David Marcus Twitter account fanboy, I've well, seen.
4: I so you do like David Marcus' Twitter account. Yeah, just
3: Well, come clean right now and tell the audience. Do you have a
4: bot that just, like, retweets everything? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I didn't know this was an intervention. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but, it, like, if you want the
5: latest news, like, they just, there's no, like, the, the Libra organization doesn't really exist yet. In, in it does, America. it does. This was last week? Well, yeah. It's, but it, no,
4: you follow David Marcus, come on. But, but, no
3: one, but there's no money in it. No one paid. They, they started in letter of intent to do a thing that they gave them, that had no downside for This them is crypto. You
4: create your own money.
3: Uh, <laughs> this, but, I, I just, so, uh, the whole thing was baffling to me. So, first off, is that everything is hard. What what we attempted to do and what we're trying to do now is difficult and hard. Uh, you know, We talk about we started as a bank consortium. We're now an enterprise software company. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've taken the lessons of building a consortium for doing these types of projects, which these are networks and consortiums that come together, and this is another one. And, like, I don't understand. The, the whole playbook was completely backwards. It was, but... It worked, right? Like, everybody's talking about it. Well, it, That's what you want. It works. But do you want, I mean, did they, it would be one thing for everyone to be talking about it if you had a coin live on Binance and you can get liquidity. But what, what was we the point of that. everyone talking about it? It's good for, I think, this ecosystem because it has clearly mm-hmm. uh, woken up uh, different segments of, of central banks and traditional uh, financial uh, players. And so you need that. You need, you need both uh, the carrot and the stick so, everything I try and, and reduce everything to fear and greed, mm-hmm. right? So, Sales guy. so, yeah, exactly. So, greed is great, fear and greed together is very powerful. That's so, Libra is the fear. And I think it's under, what people are trying
5: to figure out is that maybe we need to move a little faster. So I'm going to pull the audience and do that awkward thing where I ask you to show your hands. So, how many of you guys in the audience think that uh, Libra, in whatever form it takes, will be live and available for use for you and me uh, when they say it will be by the middle of 2020? Show of hands. One, one hand
4: went Dean's always optimistic about everything,
5: though. <laughs> I, I respect that. I really, really do. Okay. How many of you think it will go live looking even vaguely like it does now in the next five years? Okay. That's about 30%, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's interesting to see that, like, even in a what I would say is a mixture of financial services and, and sort of um, corporate business audiences, there is a view that, like, you wouldn't bet against these guys.
3: Well, can I add one more poll? Uh, who here thinks that Libra will never see the light of day? Oh, okay. Oh, a lot of people didn't vote. Yeah. I see.
4: Yeah. That is fine. Yeah, it was a lot of well, abstention. Well, <laughs> five years to infinity. Where the rest of the hands? <laughs>
5: <laughs> who wants us to stop polling
4: the audience?
5: <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, guys. Listen, um, to, to round this back out, Todd. Um, mm-hmm. As we're looking at um, how we start to use this and take the story back into the organisation for the C-suite, as we're looking at you know increased regulatory action, we talked a little bit about that uh, upside of, of new types of assets, but also the real-world assets. Where do I get started if I look at my if I was to look at my business as a bank or anywhere in financial services? What do I do first?
3: Well, so it, it depends on where you're coming from. So what we have seen is that there kind of broadly speaking, three sets of use cases where people get started. And broadly speaking, where they get started is, okay, I would like to reconcile some data amongst different trading participants. right? So that's the first place. If you think about what I see is what you see. Um, that's what we've seen, and you know, we're here at Corticon today, and we're going we're to see a lot of those examples uh, later this afternoon around getting a bunch of participants together that mildly trust each other uh, to be able to reconcile Yay, a set of data. trust. Yes, mild uh, trust. Like uh, better, than, better than trust. mild regulatory compliance. <laughs> um, so that's the first set, and we see a lot of that happening already that's going live. Uh, there's less risk as well because it's data. The second um, area is going back to the asset and the asset creation. So we're seeing that with some of these sort of non-traditional uh, assets potentially being tokenized and, and, and more fungible, being able to trade yeah. it around, and existing marketplaces launching assets or tokenizing things within within their ecosystem. And then the last, which I think goes back to the Libra point. Um, the, the whole promise of this is to have an, an asset and settlement happen all together, mm-hmm. delivery versus payment. And we started all this from the Bitcoin perspective, which was, oh great, unstoppable payments everywhere. But that's difficult. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for non-technology reasons. And so I do, I think I I have a ton of respect for what Libra is trying to do because they're they're attacking probably the hardest use case. And we've made, we've made massive strides over the last three, four years. Uh, there's still ways to go, but I think what you're going to start to see is an acceleration there where, where existing uh, central banks are going to start coming in for retail and wholesale, central bank digital currency. We're already starting to see existing payment rails uh, uh, providing, whether it's sort of near to real-time settlement or off-ledger settlement, it's all starting to come together. So you have this data we all agree is correct. Here's an asset we've tokenized based on that data, and we move it around and we settle when we want to,
5: Colin. Last words from you. Um, can the uh, incumbent get innovation before the uh, innovator gets distribution? And I don't necessarily mean Facebook in this. I mean sort of yeah. some of the newer businesses that are being formed that might not be uh, working uh, in a traditional sense. The, the likes of a Coinbase, for
4: instance. Well, I, I think it's again. I think it's slightly different than that. I think um, ultimately what we're starting to see is it's not just about the innovators catching up. It's the fact that regulators really still hold the strings, and central banks still hold the strings. Um, and we can still call people that are doing innovation up in front of government bodies to ask questions uh, that they don't necessarily want to have to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, other people announcing coins without getting everything in place. I wonder when David Rudder is going to be up in front of Congress for QuotaCoin. Um, but it's, it's um, there are a lot of things that we need to figure out that are hard, and they're purposefully hard because they are so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think innovators that are trying to do this and not destroy the system will probably have an easier time. Whether they're the likes of the companies that have been around for five or ten years, I don't know. Whether they're companies that have been around for six months or 50 years, it remains to be seen. Which is what makes it so much fun. Well,
5: uh, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes another Blockchain Insider Live. Give yourselves a round of applause. A massive thank you, of course, to, to my, my guests here. And also, uh, where can people find out more about you, Colin G. Platt? Uh, on Twitter, at Colin G. Platt. There, and uh, <laughs> Todd McDonald, where do they find you? Uh, at McDTV and at Corticon. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh yeah, right here. Uh, if you weren't here and you're listening in your podcast... You missed out. Yeah. Uh, it's a great day. All right. Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or just email me directly, Simon at 11FS.com. Uh, and if you want to do some cool stuff, um, 11FS is hiring too. So careers at 11FS.com is the email you need. All right. Got to get the plug in. Got to send, get the plug in. Send an email. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Come join us. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you, thank you very much. I think this thing-
3: Thank you, guys. That was a lot of fun, um, and also uh, I, uh, hopefully that that um, that really sort of brought in some of the some of the topics outside of Corticon into today. And I really appreciate uh, both uh, Simon and also Colin from traveling from his field to be with us today. It was fantastic.
0: Thanks Simon, Colin and Todd and that wraps up our show and just to remind you all, this podcast is made by 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services.
1: Where can people find out about you, Iman? Well, you can find out about me on Twitter, uh, at acoli. I must stress, it's very much a personal account so don't expect uh, deep corporate insights, Uh, lots of rantings about music probably, Um, but I'm on Uh, LinkedIn as well. I'm far more professional. Collier and I work for a great company called DXC where we're focusing on digital transformation and um, you know we're helping enterprises uh, shift to digital technology. And one more thing I'd like to do, a colleague of mine, Anthony Welfare, has released a book recently on commercializing crypto and blockchain and how you can use it all in the modern world. It's a really good read. So commercializing blockchain, strategic applications in the real world, cross-sector, pretty handy. Check it out. Oliver?
0: Where can people find out more about you? I am
1: probably most active on
2: LinkedIn, where you can find me at LinkedIn slash in slash Oliver Sadie. My Twitter account is not very well uh, managed, but our corporate account is good, BCB Crypto, and that's at BCB Crypto. Keep an eye on our website, bcbgroup.io. We're just coming up for our Series A funding, which we are very excited about. Also, keep an eye out for all the exciting developments coming out of Corda, Cordite, Dazzle, that whole space. Uh, I see today the XTS fountain was just uh, released, which is effectively a cryptocurrency on Corda. It's pretty cool. Check it out.
0: Check it out indeed. And you can find me at PetBerisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A, for you who... uh... Yeah, freaked out when you heard how complicated the name was. Uh, A big thank you to the amazing production here at 11FS. So Hannah, uh, Michael in the room, and Alex Woodhouse and Holly, our editors. Thanks for listening. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week.
1: Goodbye.